Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at Netflix's The Trial of the Chicago 7, the new Aaron Sorkin feature that has not a whole lot of people talking, but we're going to talk about it. We're also going to look at Bong Joon-ho's uh, second film, Memories of Murder. Bong Joon-ho made headlines last year being the director of Parasite, which swept the Oscars. You might have heard about it, especially if you listen to this show. And we saw his second film in theaters, which is crazy. We caught caught a private screening, which was really a public <laughs> yeah, screening, but nobody else was there. So it was just us. It was great. Uh, we're going to talk about some trailers uh, for some things that are coming out. I'm excited to look at those. But first things first, we need to get to the news. Our first story this week, Governor Cuomo, that's how you say it, uh, from New York says movie theaters outside of the city are allowed to reopen in limited capacity. Very exciting, Andy. Why, yeah, why, finally... why is this? Yeah. Why is this news out of New York exciting for cinema? Is a broader concept. So New York has not had their theaters open at all since the pandemic started back in in March. Um, Not even at a small or like half uh, capacity. Um, So they've agreed to reopen at a very small 25% capacity, which is about 50 people per screen. And this is outside of like New York City proper. So it's uh, kind of the rest of the state. And then there's several guidelines about, you know, what your what your kind of stats have to be before you can reopen. But it's a it's a good step in the right direction. As we know, New York City is the second largest uh, film kind of theater area in, in the world. So it's a huge part of the the revenue stream for theater. So they're starting to slowly open and this is a good sign. Right. This is exciting for movies in general because the two biggest areas where movies come out in America are California and New York, right? Those are the two, like, hot spots. So if both of those are at least kind of rock and rolling, we have a much better chance of seeing a lot more movies coming back to theaters, theaters reopening, more movies start coming back in. It's a snowball effect. So this is a good first step. Theaters in New York, at least outside of the city, are exploring reopening. And also it's good, you know, for people proper. New York's been shut down, like, since... Since, God, what, February, I think, is when, like, it really... Yeah. Yeah, like, February, it really shut down. So, at least outside the city, quarter capacity, it's a start, right? Like, it, we're, we're moving towards something bigger. That's what's important. Yeah, exactly. It, it's... Hopefully, things will be... Will continue to decline. We'll have declining numbers, and we can open up to 50%. And, you know, that, that'll help. Meanwhile, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm sorry. We don't have an article for this, but do you know how things are out in California? I think they're similar, right? Limited capacity. Yeah. Ex- yeah. In, in certain counties, areas, uh, they're starting to reopen. L.A. proper is not open yet. Yeah. And meanwhile, here in Texas, things are, you know, they're okay. They're mixed back, but it's fine. Our other story this week, uh, AMC Entertainment unveils deal to sell up to 15 million shares Wah, wah, AMC's not doing so hot, Andy. Uh, what is this about? I haven't actually... Haven't well, it was actually funny because their their stock initially shot up um, upon the news opening of, of New York starting to reopen. Um, but then it's kind of crashed today. It was down like 12% uh, on them selling a bunch of shares. Uh, there's a bunch of technical business uh, numbers and stuff in this article. But the important thing is that uh, AMC is running out of money and they're having to uh, sell shares to just stay solvent. Uh, they think they can hang on till about mid 2021 uh, with this latest round of, of funding. Uh, but it's looking real rough. And there's, you know, one of the numbers in, in here says that l- this time last year they had made over a billion dollars. And this year they're, or where they are now is about 110 million. So they're like at 10% of where they would normally be. So they're in a lot of trouble. And they only got about six months left worth of cash. So that's just kind of the state of things. We'll have to see how how and when theaters begin to reopen. I'm impressed. Your numbers are almost spot on. Yeah. Uh, This time last year, they had made $1.3 billion by this point in the year. Right now, they're like $120 million. It's like not even a tenth of what they'd made before. According to this, they're they're burning something like $100 million a month. Um, which is nuts. Uh, I thought Disney burning a million a day was a lot, but like that only adds up to 30 million a month. That's nothing compared to what AMC is doing right now. So uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm bummed on the one hand. Like, I, I used to work. AMC was my first job when I was a kid, right? That was where I, like, you know, learned to work and work a schedule and, and really Maybe fell in love with the movies. you became a man. Yeah, exactly. So so this is a bit of a bummer for me. But on the other hand, dude, AMC has taken, like, a turn as far as entertainment's concerned that, like, I just don't agree with. Um, back then, back then people complained about popcorn prices, dude. And the large was, like... I remember when they jumped it from six twenty five to six seventy five, and that was like ground shaking amongst the staff. People quit. Like people, <laughs> people didn't actually quit, but like there were customers that were mad. Man, I I, I caught that I'm whole. Sure. Back in my day, I used to come to the theater for a quarter thing a million times a day. It was a mess, and now a large popcorn's like nine bucks, which I bring up because we went to AMC to see Memories of Murder, which we'll talk about at the end of the show. And dude, popcorn's still nine dollars. <laughs> yeah, I bought a seven dollar icy. I couldn't yeah, believe it. In these unprecedented times, I can get it for three fifty at Cinemark. Is yeah, all I'm seven bucks for an icy. Cinemark is just as good as AMC, man. And it's it's three fifty, three fifty, like for an icy. It's five bucks for a large popcorn. So they haven't. Let's let's recap here, right? All right, Cinemark, the third largest company uh, theater company in America right now, has discount concessions, discount tickets. They 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 they're they're doing their thing, and it kind of works. AMC has not discounted anything. Everything is still full price. Everything. So if you're going to an AMC theater, expect to pay what you were, you know, pre-pandemic prices uh, in in these in these hard times, so AMC can get by. I'm bummed, man. I, I don't like it. Yeah, it was. Uh... Wasn't real happy about it either. <laughs> no, no, and 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 you know I, I feel bad for AMC, but at the same time, like I don't know, man. Like when you when you we were reading stories a month ago that said they were only cash solving through the end of the year. I'm glad they're they're pivoting. I'm glad they have a strategy to make 15 million shares. But even then, that only gets them through. I mean, like what middle April, of 2021 yeah, yeah it's April, assuming by, that's assuming by june next year we're walking rock and rolling at best and they don't have to do this again so you know i, I don't know amc number one theater company in the world i uh I, i'm at a loss i guess that's what i think and with that we should move on to our first review uh i'm gonna be taking the summary on this one i'm gonna be honest there are a lot of <laughs> names to cover so i'm gonna give you a broad look and we're gonna get right into it the movie is aaron sorkin's the trial of the chicago seven at the defense table abby hoffman jerry rubin dave dellinger Rennie davis lee weiner john Freund, tom hayden and bobby seal these defendants had a plan and the plan was to incite a riot I call this portion of the trial with friends like these. So the trial of the Chicago 7 is the story of seven people that are on trial, stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising following the 19... No, during, sorry, the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, Illinois, right? It's the late 60s. Vietnam is rocking and rolling. Richard Nixon has just been elected, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it's safe to say there are some protesters that are big mad, right? They're upset about it. And they want to go out and say something. So during the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, lots of cameras, lots of eyes on Illinois. They're going to organize. They're going to get together at Grant Park and they're going to they're gonna have themselves a good old-fashioned protest but surprise surprise when multiple groups of, of protesters come together from all over the country to coincide in Grant Park at the same time cops get riled up people get riled up it turns into a, yeah, a bit of a riot situation I think an uprising is how IMDB describes it but it's a it's a full-on riot and the seven primary organizers of this uh, kind of plus one really eight uh, all get pulled into a courtroom by the attorney general of Richard Nixon's administration to be tried for inciting a riot and hopefully to uh, to quell the tide of people who are upset by the war in Vietnam and the violence that's happening, um, you know overseas so uh this is a courtroom drama this is an aaron sorkin written and directed feature you might remember sorkin from his writing in things like the west wing uh the newsroom on hbo the social network a david fincher film personal favorite of mine he wrote that uh and a lot of broadway plays he has not directed a whole lot so this is not maybe his strongest directorial feature, but it's very well written. Lots of great actors and actresses in here, and I'm excited to get into what works and what doesn't. But first things first, Andy, what did you think of The Trial of the Chicago 7? So I enjoyed this uh, for the most part. Uh, there's some really great performances. Uh, 
real uh, standouts like uh, Frank Langella as the the judge, who's probably one of the most uh, hated characters I could remember in a long time. Uh, Mark Rylance as the uh, defense attorney, as well as Sasha Baron Cohen. There's some really good performances, and there's some really good set pieces where where they reenact some of these uh, these riots or some of these protests that, that got got um, you know turned violent um, in the '60s. So the recreation of that is really good. It it for me it drags a little bit. In, in like the second or third act, it seems to kind of go on. 90% of this movie is in the courtroom, and mm-hmm. it's just, it just kind of stays there a long time. And then the other thing that, that kind of uh, I, I wasn't too thrilled about is, is I feel like while we know that the basically the American government is the bad guys in this, they're you know undermining this protest movement um, and are putting on this trial to, to essentially... Put the put the protests, uh, put the anti-war movement on trial. Um, it's very clear who the antagonists are, but the protagonists are not real focused, or whatever their message that they're trying to get that we're supposed to take away from the good guys is a little unclear. There's a lot of themes, and they don't they're not particularly well developed, uh, kind of in my opinion. But we can talk about that later. Yeah, I think I'm just about in the same boat. I think what works great here is the acting, and I think Sorkin's kind of beat-to-beat writing, right? His first big project was writing A Few Good Men uh, for Broadway, and then also writing the film, which Tom Cruise and uh, Jack Nicholson starred in. That was kind of the start of his big career. As far as directing goes, he's only ever done two films, Molly's Game, which came out last year, year before, uh, and this. So... Not the best as far as, like, general structure goes, but the the conversations and the acting is rock solid. That's because he's got a great cast to work with. So let's dive in there. Uh, First things first, we have our seven who are on trial, plus one. (laughs) So eight people who are on trial. We have a defense attorney and his assistant. We have a prosecuting attorney and his assistant. We have a acting attorney general. We have a former attorney general. We have a judge. Uh, And that's just the quick like cast that's not including anybody else so that's a lot of characters and just to hit kind of the big ones here to run down the list because i know if you're listening to this show you're probably not going to keep track of all of these we're going to have people like eddie redmayne uh as tom hayden we're going to have sacha baron cohen as abby hoffman um let's see yaya abdul mateen the second uh plays bobby seal who is our eighth man we'll talk about him in a minute uh, Mark Rylance as as, a, as the defense attorney. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the prosecuting attorney, which is a surprising surprising turn from him. I haven't seen him in much outside of Netflix's Project Power lately. Uh, we got a lot, and Frank Langella, I should say, as 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 the judge, which I actually really enjoyed seeing him again. I this is gonna sound terrible. I kind of I thought he might be dead, so I was surprised <laughs> when he rolled up on screen. I think I was thinking of like. I don't know who I was thinking of, uh, but I'm glad he's alive. I'm glad he's okay, and I'm excited to see he's still working. Lots of great performances here. Um, we get some really good opportunities to have Sacha Baron Cohen doing this like deep Chicago accent, very uh, very in character for him, as he likes to do. He's a character actor. Eddie Redmayne doing an American accent, which is uh, a little muted and maybe not so strong. Uh, Mark Rylance being a fantastic defense attorney. That guy is understated, and he's very good at these subtle kind of actions um, that you need to pull off a really convincing courtroom drama performance. Yaya Abdul-Mateen as Bobby Seale is tremendous. Frank Langell is good. I liked everybody in this movie. The, the only people that didn't stand out are a couple members of The Seven who are younger actors, people I haven't seen before. Um, they're just kind of, it just kind of flies on the wall. But um, there's some really good opportunities for, for strong performances uh, in this film, and it's, it's taken advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, the performances are really what stand out. It's an amazing cast. It's a really big cast, and this shows you what the Netflix money can do. If you were at a traditional th- studio, you would have to like get some unknowns in some of these other roles, or just cut and cut parts um, to get it to get it made. But you know, Netflix can can drop those Netflix dollars and really get this big cast. And this is you know when people talk about wanting to add like the ensemble cast drop category to the oscars this is the kind of film that that would be that because that's exactly what what this is Mm -hmm. it it is yeah no this definitely feels like an ensemble feature uh in the best way and i think that's where sorkin's writing really jumps out right um sorkin if you're not really familiar with his work is is very good at fast writing right his conversations move very quickly he has characters interrupting each other he has characters talking over each other in some scenes 
His scripts, like, notoriously are very long. Uh, usually in film, a one-page of script is equivalent to about one minute of film. That's typically the standard. Sorkin's are, like, five pages of script for one minute of film. Like, he, his stuff is just moving fast because he has this kind of stream-of-consciousness approach to writing his dialogue that feels very natural, but can also kind of overwhelm you if you don't really know it's coming. And it's worth mentioning this is a two-hour and ten-minute film, which is a lot of Aaron Sorkin. That's a lot... It's a lot of Aaron Sorkin coming at you, and he's also directing this picture, so you know he's 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 excited about hearing his own dialogue, uh, and and that can be a little overwhelming. Um, the first ten or fifteen minutes of this film, they're introducing all of our characters, and it's way too fast, and it's way too much, <laughs> and it's like they're just flying at you, and it's jumping around to different parts of the country where oh, Eddie Redmayne is is working at the Students for Democratic Society National whatever, and then Bobby Seals is is the uh, Chicago chairman of the Black Panther Party, and, and this guy's doing this, and it, it's it's too much, it's too much, it's just too much. Um, it's a lot, but for sure. You just kind of move through it, right? Just let it wash over you. And then after that, you kind of get into the courtroom drama. And that is where most of this film is spent, in the courtroom. It's like 80, 85% courtroom and like 15% flashbacks to the actual thing that happened and, and kind of cutaways to like evenings when the characters are sitting around talking about it in the house they're all staying in together in Chicago. So um, that stuff, I think, it plays pretty good. Yeah, uh, one of the kind of complaints I've seen about this is the kind of familiarity of the events. If you're not familiar with this, uh, with these these riots or, or this um, pe- period in American history, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to keep up with it. I actually read a little bit about all this going into the movie just so I would have a better background of it. Um, and the, kind of the structure of the film, what it does a little bit differently, usually you would have the events and then have the trial. Typically, in, you see the thing, and then you get the trial <laughs> afterwards, right? Right. Yeah. In this, we experience it kind of like as a juror would, where you, the trial is happening, and then we get flashbacks to different events, um, some of these uh, these riots that, that broke out, and also just di- different people meeting with each other or, or not meeting or having phone calls. But th- there's a, a lot of the events are experienced in flashback. Yeah, and, and that is... Not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, I think of something like A Few Good Men, right? When I think of Aaron Sorkin and, and especially courtroom dramas, because this is where he cut his teeth. And in A Few Good Men, like, you don't actually get a whole lot of the inciting incident, right? <laughs> like, the actual reason Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson are in a courtroom isn't all that prevalent to the film. But what you remember is the courtroom performances, right? That's, that's where he shines right. because he's so good at writing that dialogue, that quick feeling, very natural sounding, very confident approach to how his characters speak and express themselves is what's uh, you know a hallmark of Sorkin productions and that's definitely present here but he's got a lot of characters to juggle and that can be a bit of a challenge but spending our time in the courtroom things work out pretty good uh the court case starts pretty strong at least uh Frank Langella hears the prosecuting attorney's uh, stuff and and then he get into the defense attorney stuff and suddenly you have our seven characters talking over each other in the courtroom and interrupting each other and jumping on uh, one person says another thing and it turns out this judge He's not exactly crooked, but he's kind of old and he's not able to keep up with everybody's names and he's getting confused about who's what. And like when our characters are confused, we're definitely confused. I managed to hang on through that. I managed to kind of, I don't know, I, I, I got through it okay. But at the same time, there are characters who I don't remember in this film. There are smaller actors who like just did not pop off screen at all. And the ones that did work are the ones who managed to rise above that noise and command performances that demanded respect. People like Sacha Baron Cohen, people like Eddie Redmayne. Um... I'm wondering if you had the same problem. Was it just too much? Is it just too much coming at you at once, you think? I, I felt like I kept up with it pretty well, but there definitely are some standouts. So uh, Frank Langella is the uh, judge who, he is absolutely incredibly biased against the Chicago 7. He, you know, it's a very unfair trial. It, he he doesn't allow a lot of things that would pr- very pro- probably have swayed the, the jury's opinion this kind of thing. He shuts down the defense um, a whole lot. He does a really good job of, of being a character you're absolutely going to hate and be frustrated with. Um, again, I said Mark Rylance is a prosecuting t- a- attorney. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen is as Abby Hoffman, who is the, uh, he, the... The interesting thing is that these guys are not all part of one organization. They're part of several. They lead several very different type of organizations. Like Eddie Redmayne, uh, Tom Hayden is a political a- activist, whereas Abby Hoffman's more of a cultural activist, 
you know, and, and there's, there's issues about like class and money and all this, but uh, he stands out. Like you said, Eddie Redmayne uh, also really stands out. It's worth mentioning. Uh, I think Sorkin has a tendency to write for the time that he's in, right? You look at something like HBO's the newsroom and that was very much a response to nine 11 and the war in Iraq and, and kind of where he felt like the world was going. So that's why he ended up writing three seasons of that show. I think this film, shares a similar sentiment right why why are we producing a film about protests and riots uh in in 2020 and i think that can make this movie feel topical i do think it's still a little disconnected from maybe what inspired him to write this film i think uh protests over the war in vietnam are not quite the same uh they don't share the same motivations as things like the black lives matter movement and ultimately, I think the way this film resolves itself is not quite as, um, I don't know, endearing as I guess I expected. I didn't know how it ended. And it really, I didn't know a whole lot about this trial going in. So I was definitely curious to see where it was going. And it's a it's an, it's a pretty fun ride along the way. But um, I, I don't know. Is that, am I, am I, I don't want to give no, away what happened. No, no, here, exactly what we're, yeah. no, no, exactly what you're talking about. So uh, first of all, it towards the end we get a scene that, that's very kind of stereotypical of courtroom dramas where someone's making a impassioned speech the music s- swells of everyone course. starts to yeah. to clap and you know it's, it's like one of these oscar moments it comes off as really weak and it kind of comes out of nowhere and this gets back to what i, I was saying about like there's kind of an unfocused message from our our protagonist you know there's a yeah. little bit about you know leftist unity and there's an argument between hoffman and tom hayden about you know well i i'm i want to win elections like we can't do anything if we don't win elections and <clears throat> abby hoffman it's like well it doesn't matter elections don't matter they don't they don't bring about equality they don't you know so there's a little bit of that but just like uh, and again there's an anti-war thing the anti-war thing is like way it's like in the back seat for the whole movie and then it kind of gets ham-fisted in in towards the end and again like like i said whatever message we're supposed to get from this is completely convoluted to me yeah like the the most kind of straight line i found through it was the idea of protest as an action and as a response uh to a government you don't believe in right which are our seven obviously are very adamant about right they are they are inherently protest organizers they've gone the next step besides just showing up with the sign they're encouraging other people to show up with the sign and, and you start to get into these questions of like what does it mean to have a protest what are you responding to and what effectively do you want that message to be and how how do you want the world to perceive who you are and there's a bit of an interesting line there our, our, our Eddie Redmayne character is a very straight line play by the rules kind of protester, right? Like I want everybody to go vote. I want everybody to stay involved. I want everybody to be informed. Um, but ultimately I want change. Whereas Sacha Baron Cohen uh, is the opposite end. He's like, I want people living in tents. I want people getting stoned all the time. Flower power, baby. Like that's, that's the way it is, right? Group love. That's kind of his whole thing. And the two of them kind of, at odds with each other even though they share this similar fate uh, in this courtroom uh, is interesting and i think that's unique but ultimately it doesn't it doesn't i don't want to say it's not satisfying at the end because i worry that will encourage people not to watch it and that's not my point but I, it, you, like you said the message is convoluted and that, yeah, uh, that hurts it yeah is, is it about elections is it about cultural revolution is it about left unity is it yeah. about fighting the corrupt government it seems it's a little bit about everything without ha- having like a kind of more focused singular uh message yeah and i think that's just a fault of a long film with a lot of characters like it's just hard to juggle motivations and figure out where everybody is but i do love sorkin and i do love his writing and i'm very anxious to see uh I, I guess formally whether or not you'd recommend this thing andy so any other thoughts for recommendations no i think i'm ready Andy, would you recommend The Trial of the Chicago 7? Yeah, overall, I would. It's a very well-made film. It's well-written. There's a, an incredible cast, really good performances. Like I said, it does lack a little bit of focus in, in some of its thematic elements. But uh, overall, especially in a year where we haven't had a lot of film, it, it's it's really great to see something that's... I mean, this is going to be probably nominated for some Oscars. The recreation uh, of some of the events that happened in the su- summer of 68 are really incredible you know that you have 
thousands of extras and, and costumes and, and all that. Um, and so again, if you're already subscribed, so yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Like I said, my main gripe, and it's just kind of a small one. It's just kind of a lack of thematic focus. Yeah. I, I feel kind of the same way. I, I would recommend this. Um, I, I do think it's pretty good. I, it's not, it's not like go out right now and see it, right? Like subscribe to Netflix so you can watch the, the Trial of Chicago 7. But like if you're looking for something that's like a bit more serious, a bit less dry, and it's got some good character acting in there. If you want to see what Sacha Baron Cohen's been up to lately or Eddie Redmayne with an accent or maybe catch a, a, a pretty good Joseph Gordon-Levitt performance, give it a shot. Like it's, it's a good Aaron Sorkin courtroom drama. It's just not a great Aaron Sorkin courtroom drama. Um... It feels timely, uh, and somehow at the same time, it, it feels misguided. Um, ultimately, it's pretty good, and I feel like I'm, I'm harping on the bad more than I am the good. I did like it a lot, so yeah, that's Trial of Chicago 7. Go see it, I suppose. Yeah. And it's also, it's also one of these things that if, if you're not familiar with these events historically, you absolutely should be. It's yeah, kind of do yourself a favor to read up on the, the situation before and after uh, you see the film. Yeah, I do wonder how this would resonate with older audiences, right? Like, if I recommended my folks went and saw this, what they'd think of it. I bet they'd like it more, but they'd probably be more familiar with the subject matter, right? I mean, so. yeah, I mean, I've, I've read people watching this and being on the, the side of the government. <laughs> so, you know, it, yeah. it really depends. Sure, it really does. And with that, we should move on to our next segment. Uh, this is, well, a- Andy, you mind just, just giving us the formal intro, please? It's time for the trailer park. Perfect. So the first trailer we're going to be talking about is a movie I'm very excited to talk about. The movie is David Fincher's Mank. And Mank is the story of Herman J. Mankiewicz, who, if you don't know, was one of the most prolific screenwriters of our time and is the story of Herman trying desperately to work with this new upcoming filmmaker called Orson Welles on this hot new movie idea he's got called Citizen Kane. And if you don't know who Orson Welles is and you don't know who Citizen Kane is, then boy, are you in for a treat. David Fincher is directing Mank for Netflix, and it's a different film for him. It's actually a screenplay written by his father, Jack Fincher, uh, before he passed away in 2003. Back in 1997, shortly after David Fincher directed the game, he was supposed to make Mank with Kevin Spacey, but no studio would greenlight a black and white film, which is exactly how Fincher wanted to make it. He said, I want to make it black and white. My dad wanted it to be black and white. I want this to be like my, my, my thing for him. I'm, I'm excited for him to see it. It's this movie about the movies. It's this movie. It's a script about writing a script, uh, of, for, for what, what would lead to be one of the greatest films of all time, Citizen Kane, uh, and working with a director who is notoriously difficult to work with. He was really excited to do it and he could not get a single studio to greenlight it until Netflix came along and said, we will make that movie for you. Let's do it. And this is it. This is this is Fincher's like pet project. This is this thing he's always wanted to make. And it looks so weird, man, because I'm, I'm a Fincher <laughs> fanboy and this does not look like anything he's made before. But I know he's really wanted to do it. I mean, for 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 almost 20 years now, he's been chewing on this movie. And and here we are. So before we move on to our next one, I just want to say this movie is coming out November 2020 in the U.S. It'll be briefly in theaters before it gets pushed to Netflix. Of course, that would be them normally trying to go for an Oscar run. Uh, and looking at the cast, it might get there. We've got Gary Oldman as Herman J. Mankiewicz. We've also starring, uh, let's see, Amanda Seyfried, Lily Collins, and uh, Charles Dance, and then a couple of the people who are supposed to be hot up-and-comers. So stellar cast, uh, as far as I know. It's nobody I'm really familiar with, but they seem to be all, you know, new new folks, and that's exciting. Um, and yeah, it's a Fincher film. It's black and white. Seems like perfect Oscar bait, so... I don't know. We'll, we'll see, I guess. Uh, Andy, what are we watching next? Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, so this is a new film by Ron Howard, uh, starring Amy Adams and Glenn Close and uh, newcomer Gabriel Basso. It is a memoir slash novel by J.D. Vance, who we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, Gabriel Basso stars as uh, J.D. Vance, who is 
going to a, a job interview of, of a lifetime. He, he's about to get this really big job, but his, uh, he runs into trouble with his, uh, his kind of drug-addicted mother, played by Amy Adams, has to try and deal with her, meanwhile having flashbacks to being raised by uh, Glenn Close as, as a young person. Um, it's kind of this rags-to-riches story. It's Oscar bait, and it's total poverty porn. Uh, is what it, as soon as I saw this, I, that's exactly the, what I got. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Ed, so let's talk a little bit about this author. So JD Vance is a, like, uh, he's a hedge fund manager, multimillionaire. He's a right wing, uh, pundit and uh, commentator, uh, political figure. Uh, and he's written this, this, uh, memoir, semi-autobiographical book about the, you know, growing up and getting out of poverty and using gumption and and all that to uh, achieve and all those things. Um, It's kind of one of these caricatures of someone trying to succeed in a terrible or in a rough family, Uh, something we've seen a lot of times before. Amy Adams looks, uh, she looks like a a meth addict. Uh, You know, she's, yeah, she's she's overweight. She's or she's put on weight for the role. Uh, she's uh, you know her hair is all all fried. Um, the, the like I said, the, this movie just this trailer looks like Oscar bait. And the more I, I read about this person, this guy, I was like, oh, okay, that totally makes makes sense. Um, so that's it. Zach. What do you think of this trailer? Uh, so I don't know anything about JD Vance, right? But but on its face, it looks okay. Um, I, it looks like Ron Howard making a Netflix film. Honestly, it looks like it lacks a certain amount of like uh, like a certain production value, I guess that I would expect. It looks like a very intimate story, right? Like it's it, it looks like it's all going to take place in like six settings, and one of them's going to be this house they're all bouncing around in, and the field outside the house. And I guess that's cool. Glenn Close and Amy Adams look terrible, right? Like, uh, and and I guess that's the point. Um, but I, I don't, man. I don't really, I don't really go for stories like this one. Like, I can appreciate why like the story seems to need to be told but ultimately like i don't i don't know i don't we've, we've seen this a lot and apparently there's a lot of complaints about kind of his depiction of uh appalachian america because it's one of these things where um yes the, these are poor areas a lot of times um, plagued by poverty and and drug use addiction these things uh but that's not all that's there and that's not the majority of the people but it's kind of uh how people want to think of Appalachian yokels. Yeah. I just don't feel like it's bringing anything to the table that I haven't seen before. And that's okay. Like you can always make a movie that like builds on what came before you, you can, you can kind of pay tribute to like what's, what's, what's happened before. But I look at a movie like this and I think of a movie like the Florida project or like moonlight. And I'm like, both of those did something like really incredible with this idea of like being, in poverty and and getting by and living and told like really incredible stories by building something on that they told the story from a child's perspective they told uh, the story from from the from the from the perspective of a young gay black man like and and the kind of the story of his life in three acts <laughs> this just looks like a little. Um, it's like every every cliche yeah it's a bunch of white people in ohio you know like neat i don't know um maybe that's the wrong way to feel about it but it just, it just looks like ron howard does netflix it's like ron howard but not quite at the level of ron howard you expect from like a theatrical ron howard picture it's 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 ron howard lights diet ron howard mm-hmm. well, you, well you bring up those other films like those movies are about people living in poverty but they're about so much more they're not just like look how ter- like let's go visit the 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 slums and and feel bad for these people like it's telling a larger story like um what's the disney world one i just just the florida, florida Prod. right it's about these people living in hotels right next to orlando and it's about the disparity of of wealth you know because you have people spending boatloads of money at Disney World meanwhile people are, are living in hotels these squalid hotels in Orlando or you have something like Moonlight which is about uh, it's about identity and what it means to grow up in, in that kind of environment and be a, a gay man um, you know it's about so much more besides poverty yeah you know and, that's just kind of the, the setting and this this seems like this is all that this is about yeah and both of those movies like definitely featured like drug addled mothers who were shirking the responsibilities of their children like that was that was a central part of that but like it wasn't a 
about them. Like it was kind of about more. It was about life as a proper. So I don't know. This this movie does have this angle of like three generations, right? And Glenn Close is the grandma, and Amy Adams is the mom, and this kid is the son. And yeah, sure. Um, but I don't know. I I I, I don't know. <laughs> it, lo- it looks okay, I guess. Um, and that's another that's n- another Netflix movie. I think yeah, all three, right. three of these are Netflix films because this nothing is, else is coming out. This is definitely it, it, it seems a bit like a like a Ron Howard pet project. Like he looks like he could have gone out and shot this with them over like two weeks, right? Like just busted out this feature real fast. There's not a whole lot of people in it. Uh, some pretty good makeup, at least on Glenn Close and Amy Adams's end. But I don't know. Eh, it looks all right, so we'll see. Uh, our last feature film we should talk about the trailer for is another Netflix feature. Oh my God, they're all Netflix. I know. I, just I didn't put this that. together until just now. The movie is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is the story of uh, a recording session in 1927 Chicago as tensions rise between Ma Rainey, her ambitious horn player, and the white management team that are running the studio. Uh, Ma Rainey is the mother blues, according to this picture, and I feel bad for not knowing that. Um, because I, I do, I do kind of, I kind of dig on the blues, obviously not a whole lot, but, uh, uh, and, and, and that, that, that's what this is. It's her trying to get a record made, uh, and, and dealing with their band and dealing with, uh, the, the, the people running the studio who've got an issue with it because it's 1927 and they're, they're, they're white and, and, and the band and Ma Rainey are black. Uh, the movie stars Viola Davis as Ma Rainey and what is Frankly, an unrecognizable performance, in my humble opinion, and also are the late Chadwick Boseman as her horn player, who seems very ambitious, and it is very surreal to watch a trailer with him in it, knowing this is his final film. Um, mixed feelings on this one. Andy, what do you think? Uh, I'm really intrigued by this. Like, as a, as a music uh, person... Um like the the music angle is really getting me. I, I'm interested to to learn about the these artists, um, and you know the, the the relationship between artists and manage management, music managers uh, who end up stealing from artists a lot of times, uh, money wise, uh, is something that that's old as time almost. So I'm interested in this role. Uh, like you said, Viola Davis looks incredible. Like she looks. Un- unrecognizable. I, I it's like. I'm just like give her the Oscar. And there's a difference here between her and like we saw Amy Adams in in Hillbilly Elegy. Like it's just like like the, these are both Oscar performances or, or pe- they're trying for Oscars. But this one just seems less. I don't know. Less, less pandery, less exploitative. Um, so I, I I'm excited for it. I, I think it it looks really good. I'm, I'm and, and of course Chadwick Boseman. He looks like he's playing like a teenager. Like he looks really young. Dude, he's he not, lo- but he, he looks. He just pops like he's so vibrant, and he looks so youthful, and he looks like he has so much energy, and like it makes it tough to watch the trailer. But I'm excited to watch the film. Um, I I do wonder if they've pivoted kind of their marketing a little bit. Um, like how central he is to the film. But that being said, he's the freaking Black Panther, right? Like they wouldn't hire him to do the movie if it wasn't a big part. So I think he's important. I, I wonder how central he is to Ma Rainey as a story. And and um, he's definitely featured prominently in the trailer, but I'm excited to see it. Uh, yeah, this Mank, a little bit of Hillbilly Elegy, solid picks from Netflix. These are things that would normally right be be Oscar eligible and probably will be for 2020, whatever that may mean. Um, but ultimately, not not bad, not a bad turn at Netflix. Maybe not the next Roma, or 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 maybe um, we'll have to wait and see. I guess. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah. Also, all all rated R. So watch out. <laughs> this is bold, the boldest of bold cinema. That's all we're talking about here. And with that, we should probably move on to our final film of the episode. Andy, uh, do our audience a favor and just introduce, before you jump into the movie proper, how did you find this screening and and where did this come from? Because I knew nothing about this movie going in. And I think odds are people listening have no idea what this is. So give us true. a little bit of cultural context. That's true. So last year at the Oscars, uh, director Bong Joon-ho uh, one for uh, Parasite, along with a number of other Oscars. Huge deal. 
He's an incredible director, and he's made a lot of other films uh, before now. And one of those is called Memories of Murder, uh, which is apparently uh, a crime classic, which I'd never really heard of uh, up until recently. And I saw that there was going to be a couple of uh, special screenings uh, along with an interview with the director uh, coming to town. And when I looked, uh, there were actually two screenings uh, yesterday and today. And so we got a chance to see this movie in the, in the theater with no one else because, um, you know, it was pretty obscure. Uh, but that's kind of how I found out about it. I just, I had heard a little bit about it. I heard that it was uh, a classic and that it was going to be coming down just for a couple of days. And so we went so <laughs> Yeah, so so we, we went and went to the Haunted Theater. And <laughs> that, that we go to this AMC that's in an abandoned, or what is an abandoned and right, uh, right. mall. Right, um, right. But for for those in Dallas, the theater is AMC Valley View 16 at the Valley. What what, what used to be the Valley View Mall, which is it's got to be. I mean, if it's it's got to be haunted or cursed or something, dude. The energy coming out of that place is nuts. Um, but the theater's nice. <laughs> theater's okay. Um, anyway, so uh, let's get go ahead and get into the film. Yes, Memories of Murder. So this is a 2003 crime drama uh, by a director, Bong Joon-ho, who of course did Parasite as well as Okja and The Host. Those are probably his most well-known movies. Um, the film is loosely based on or inspired by a series of serial murders that occurred in real life um, in rural South Korea uh, in the mid-1980s. Uh, it was a, a huge thing, uh, shocking for the country. The, uh, a huge amount of, of men were... Um, or like police forces and things were put forth to try and uh, catch uh, these people. So that's kind of what inspired this. And we we start the, the film. Uh, we meet uh, Kang, Kang Ho Song, who was played the father in Parasite. He plays Detective Park. We also have Detective Seo, D- Detective Cho. Um, so we have these three detectives, and they're really out of, out of their depth. Uh, Detective Park and Detective So are, they're terrible detectives. They, <laughs> not only are they not good, but they also do things like they brutalize their suspects. They basically torture people into confessing. Um, and the, it's not good police work. And while they're trying to find this thing, the killer is still at large. We also meet uh, Detective Cho or excuse me, uh, Detective So, who's from uh, Seoul, Korea. He comes down to give, uh, you know, kind of bring some expertise to the area. And he's he's smarter. You can tell he's had more training, more education. He's a better detective. He, he does better kind of um, police work, just uh, do, inspecting things, this kind of thing. He's not beating people ha- half to death in, in order to get, get a confession. Uh However, they still struggle to to catch the killer, and it's in a really unique setting because m- most pol- police procedural dramas are in cities, and you have shootouts, and you go to strip clubs, and you got got to visit this mob boss, and and we don't have any of that. We're out in rural South Korea. There's farms. There's fields, valleys, mountains. I mean, it, it's it's the exact opposite of where you have most of these settings. And that's part of what's difficult and why it was so difficult to to solve this case is because there are no, are no this pre-internet, there are no cameras. There's It's difficult to research things. They don't have the resources they need. They don't have the manpower. They don't have the technology. Um, it's a difficult setting. Um, so that's our, our setup. I'll try not to talk uh, too much about it. Uh, and this is a really incredible movie. I, I couldn't believe it i i hadn't that i hadn't seen this before uh there's a lot going on it's it's a murder mystery it's a crime drama it's uh it's a dark comedy um so there's a lot going on zach what'd you think this movie is so good dude oh man uh i i really really enjoyed watching this so you yeah to to, to get into what andy had started with right we we, we went and saw this thing he told me there was this movie that, called Memories of Murder, the South Korean kind of crime movie that he wanted to see, and I knew nothing about it. I didn't know it was a Bong Joon-ho picture. Uh, we, we get on to get tickets, and they're like 15 bucks ahead. And I was like, ooh, $15. And it says the total runtime is 2 hours, 40 minutes. And I was like, ooh, 3 hours. Okay. <laughs> South Korean film. It's 20 years old. It's 15 bucks a ticket, and it's 3 hours long. What are we getting into here? And that's when he said, it's Bong Joon-ho. It's the director of Parasite. And then I was like, okay. 
<laughs> that's <laughs> that's enough for me to say, okay, uh, I'll go see what this is about. And it was 110% worth it. This movie is super good. It is very good. Uh, it is not, it might be great. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's, if it's a great film or not, but like, it is tremendous. It is this wonderful tale of two rural detectives who do not really have the means to catch a killer trying desperately to stop a force they simply can't get in front of. Um, and as the film goes on and it, the, the, the bodies keep piling up, they keep turning to, to, to more desperate and more desperate actions, just trying trying so hard to get in front of the, in front of this guy and stop that stop him. And what's so great about it is it's a film from South Korea and it's it's in a place you and I have never been to in a language you and I don't speak. But like Bong Joon Ho in his second feature film, which is what this is, has had managed to like capture this language of film that is truly universal. That that he talked about when he was accepting the, the Academy Award for Parasite when he said all you have to do to watch to, 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 to be able to, to take in film from around the world is is get over this idea of reading subtitles. That's the one thing. Like and it's true. Like this movie feels like something that would have come out of America. It really does. It does not feel like it's shot like a foreign film. I mean, in in the in the interview afterwards, uh, the moderator Edgar Wright mentioned that he had been introduced to this film by Tarantino, and Tarantino at the time said Bong Joon Ho is like the next Spielberg, um, and that's how it feels. Like this movie feels like something that would have come from somebody like Spielberg. It is so good, uh, and it is. I mean, he made it when he was, what, 32? He made it in 2003? And I'm just now getting around to seeing this thing? Like, I'm, I'm mad that I didn't know about this before now. It is a tremendous movie. Um, if you're a fan of, of serial crime dramas, like, 110%, you should watch Memories of Murder. But it is hard hard to find. Um, and we were very lucky to catch this screening. So, Andy, what's the best place to start talking about this so I can recommend it to everybody? Um, let's, uh, well, let's go with the plot. So... We start with there. There is a murder in this uh, rural area, and um, Detective Park, played by Kang Ho Sung, he's he's on the scene kind of right away. And from the beginning, we get a, a sense uh, of kind of the disorganization. Like they're out of their depth. They 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 don't have things like tape. They can't keep people out of the crime yeah, scene. No area. caution Every, tape. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just... Everyone's like walking over you know things important things like footprints and evidence and touching the body and moving the body and all these things so from the beginning we kind of get an example of what we're dealing with um we we also have a really funny interaction when the two detectives meet the one from uh detective so from soul um they get in a fight initially because one thinks the other is a, is a criminal and they have to kind of realize oh we're actually on the same team mm-hmm. but but you know there's this oh there's a whole lot of unnecessary violence that, that is happening uh, by by the police, and that's kind of one of the, the themes. But, again, we have incompetent detectives who don't have the means, the education, the manpower, the technology um, to do this. They don't have, like, DNA evidence uh, yet. And they're just... But they're continuing to be murdered. And in real life, there were, like, 10 of these murders... Uh, before th- they stopped. I mean, it was a lot, and it was in a short time. It wasn't like 30, it was like a five-year period, and it was all co- in a very small area. Like, it was it was really frightening. Right, so being set in 83, I think, makes people think it, they, they have certain conveniences, right? Like, they probably have, like, I don't know. I think of like 83 in America, right? We were coming out with things like war games, right? Like the idea they, of they NATO computers. computers. Yeah. Dude, they don't even have TVs in this town, like in South Korea. They have radios. And I'm pretty sure that's it. I don't even think there are any TVs in this movie, right? There's, um, a, there's a couple, but it's like in restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. They have like beaten down cars. Like they, they have nothing particularly nice out here. They have no computers. They have, they're using typewriters at best. Like, Everything is old school. So they are in a very rural part of South Korea, which is all farmlands and fields and mountains way off in the back. That's it. Like it is old school. None, none of the places have air conditioning. It is windows and windows and sliding doors. Like it is. It, all right, well, it's, and older. It, it's, it's the kind of place where if you don't have an eyewitness to something, you don't have anything like there's not going to be any evidence of anything left out in the, these fields. And, and that's a, a frustrating thing. And they begin to kind of piece together a little bit of a profile. And like, you know, the, the first act that they they're starting to, okay, he, he 
operates in this this manner and he he only you know on these nights is when he's most likely to get you know they start to kind of develop a pattern but then after a while the pattern kind of goes out the window and they're just continued to be stumped yeah and and you've got these this terrible development of technology to be solving murders right the first body turns up at the beginning of the film and like our director has like a super crappy camera that he's taking photos with. And like, that's it. There's nobody coming out and like taking photos of crime scene evidence. Like it's this detective and his one camera. And like, it's, it's a bad camera at best. And, and it takes three days to develop the film. And like, you're right. Footprints aren't getting tracked. They have no caution tape to keep reporters out. Like it's rainy and muddy and they can't keep up with it. So like, they're, they're hardly collecting any evidence, but they're doing the best they can. And you've got this murderer who has now killed two people and then three people. And like this, this new hot detective from South Korea starts to pick up on these patterns because or from, from Seoul, because he had a little bit more technology in the capital. He was trained a little bit better, but he's coming along to this police force who ultimately like is a little apathetic towards him because they don't like this idea of this guy coming in with all his new newfangled science and telling him how to do things until they start to realize that the pattern pattern is emerging and this is actually a serial killer who has an MO and has an agenda. And that's when they start to angle themselves towards each other and and there's a bit of infighting but they start to find okay, we can work together, we can grow, we can start to build towards figuring this thing out. But they're just constantly one step behind this guy. Um um in in the after interview it was compared to David Fincher's Zodiac, which is a pretty good broad i'd say interpretation of what's happening here right like these 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 characters who were just chasing this person who is ever elusive and they just can't figure it out and it makes for some good drama because as the bodies continue to pile up we, we like we still don't have that 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 resolution and the stakes just get higher and higher and higher which is fantastic setting for 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 a character drama like this yeah um a lot of time is spent beating suspects half to death and coercing um confessions like yeah. they they get the wrong guy a couple of times and part of the reason that they find they only realize it's the wrong one is because murders continue to happen it's like well this guy we beat to death it's obviously not him um like uh it's really savage and and it's about and i think that's what i really loved about this film it's about how difficult justice can can be and and what what justice is and isn't because a lot of people get hurt by the long arm of the law along the way and i was actually reading in the real case there there were four people who committed suicide because of being uh accused and beaten by police and and later you know took their own lives like it was um and it's about how hard it, the trauma is on everyone not just the obviously the most would be the, the people murdered, but also the people trying to stop it and solve it. Right. And and I, I worry our depiction of events here sounds harrowing in a way that may make you think, oh, I don't want to watch this movie. It's a bunch of dirty cops. Not necessarily. The way Bong Joon-ho puts this film together plays a lot like Parasite, actually. Kind of the first half, first act is almost like a dark comedy. Yeah. These cops aren't like necessarily evil guys they're like goons who don't know any better and they're kind of goofy like the three and when, stooges yeah right? yes like the three stooges like beating up suspects like they're not they're not like you know tearing nails off with pliers or anything or electrocuting anybody they're like kicking them out of their chair you know and, and the guys they're getting are just as almost as uneducated as they are so the guys are just as goofy and like it's serious but at the same time like it's kind of funny in a way like it's not actually that dark and in a way these detectives seem a little endearing because on the one hand it seems like they're you know they, they'd really like to solve this murder but on the other hand they don't know how and this is the way they think is the correct way to do it so when this new cop comes along and says hey this isn't our guy we're doing this wrong there's a better way to do this they start to grow together and that's when you kind of get this it's just a bit of a buddy cop dynamic between the kind of the three of them uh, and that that stuff, I think, is a great segue into Act Two, where things start to ramp up, and a lot like Parasite, okay, it starts to get more serious now. And like this is, it was kind mm -hmm. of fun at first, but ultimately that was just kind of invite you into the story. And once you're kind of locked into that seat, the like the the roller coaster car starts to go down the hill, and that's when it picks up speed and really gets going somewhere. And that's that's I think when the movie really starts to shine. Yeah, ab absolutely. As things get more serious and they become more desperate. Um, and I mean, there's, there's just so much, much going on. And 
I want to wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of relationship with women. Like women are all the victims, all the murderer victims in the film, and they were in real life as well. And there's the women in this film are not portrayed particularly well, but I, but it's not a Bechtel test issue. It's a thing of like it's kind of uh, it's I think it's making statements of, of misogyny. There there is a female officer, uh, uh, Officer Kwan, who is just like told like to get coffee. Or like set up the party, like get this, like like she's like a gopher. But the, there's several times where she comes up with some re- really good information. Like she's clearly like an officer. She's not a secretary, but she's just kind of cast aside. And it, it's almost making this societal thing about how all women are kind of sidelined uh, compared to these men, and they're they ignore and they miss a lot of important clues and a lot because they're not listening like to the women around them. Yeah, like it's it's an interesting point in the Bechtel test. I've never considered this, right? The Bechtel test, for anybody who doesn't know, is the idea that if, if all of the women in a film only exist in service of the men in the film, like they're talking about them, their relationships are about them, they're dating them, then, then that fails the Bechtel test, right? This idea that the women in the movie are not independent and therefore like it's an issue of the film to make to, to write its female characters to be stronger and better characters because they only exist in service of men. This movie kind of falls for that problem because all of the many of the women in the film are victims of men, right? But they also lack a certain identity. They're not particularly like dynamic characters because they're just turning up as corpses. There are a few women who are independent, um, but I don't necessarily think they're in service of the male characters. This is a very male-driven drama. That is that is a hundred and ten percent true, but. At the same time, our, our our female deputy who's running around doing her own thing, she's also in her own department, and she's just kind of helping out with this case on the side. She does have her own kind of thing going on. She's her own character. She has a home she goes to. She has a life. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> well, it's it's an. I mean, it's I her think job, it's, right? Like, but in the film, she. I don't know. I feel like it's done on purpose. Like there is, you know, women are the victims in the in the film of the of the serial killer, as they were in real life, and I, I think that they're in a way like they're, they're victims of the larger movie of, of the, the society. And I think, and I believe it's on, on purpose. Um, what, what else have, have we <laughs> tried to think well, of anything else we haven't I talked wa- on? I wanted to talk about how this film feels oddly timeless. Um, to me, uh, this does not feel like a movie that was made in 2003. Um, in a weird way. And, and I know it's an old movie. I know it's a 17 year old film now, but the way it's shot and the way it puts to, it's put together feels modern. And I think the reason that is, is because even though it was made in 2003, it's set in 86 and Bong Joon-ho does a couple of things to sell this one. Obviously he's in rural Korea. Um, so he's in towns that lack a serious amount of technology. The fashion fits, uh, the, the, the technology people have fits the cameras, right? Nobody has cell phones. And also the film's color grading is really washed out. It's mm-hmm. almost, it's not quite black and white. I'd say it's right in between black and white and color. It's like 50% saturation. And that makes it feel like an old police serial, right? Like I'm sure the kind of things he probably watched when he was a kid growing up. It almost feels like a black and white picture. And that combination of setting and tone and color gives this film a style that, similar to something like Disney's hand-drawn animation, feels like something I can go back and revisit in another 10 years and it won't feel old. It feels like it's just perfect in the time period when it was shot. Mm-hmm. And that makes it feel, in a way, timeless. It doesn't feel like a 20-year-old film to me. It feels like something that could have come out... It feels It feels like it could have been an indie picture that came out five years ago, and it would have worked fine. You know? Like, this wouldn't have surprised me at all. It feels like something I could have gone and seen in Texas theater from a new upcoming indie director who just had a big budget and went and shot this thing in South Korea. And it would have worked. Like, it's, it's, it's a surprisingly human tale. And it's directed in a way that just feels very genuine, and it's it's truly impressive, right? And, and it's it's bigger than than the the serial murder. Like that's that's really a backseat. You know, it's about much more things. It's about the, the society, the the lack of technology. Like Bong Joon Ho said in the in the interview, it's about the gap between the, the coming the current generation and the coming technology. And he said that's that's where we have a gap. We have these detectives that are behind the times and a killer that's ahead of the times. And that's why he's able to be successful as that because it he's falling right right in this gap. So it's it's about you know, it's about the city versus the country. It's about technology versus 
uh, antiquity kind of things about what is and isn't justice. Like there's so many of these themes go- going on. Um, it's well acted, a lot of action as, as well. There's just so much going on in addition to it being a good m- murder mystery. Mm-hmm. And ultimately it turns out to be a really tremendous picture. It's, it's weird to watch it now having seen Parasite. I think because you have an expectation in your head of like a level of filmmaking that is rarely seen. I mean, Parasite is just such a tight film. Like it, it, it works so good. And like the, 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 the way it's shot and edited and directed and paced and written is all like so fantastic that it won the Academy Award last year uh, for best picture among a few others. Um, and I thought going in, I was like, okay, well this is going to be like watching, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, like a later Spielberg film versus a really early one, right? This is going to be clumsy. This is going to be early work. There's going to be problems, but like, no, it's real good. It is very good. It's got some issues, um, but I mean, it was his second feature film. Anybody's second feature film is going to have issues. Uh, and it just comes together in this fantastic package. There's so much fun to watch um, and really good. I, I really need to either get a Blu-ray of this or find a place to watch it now because outside of catching these two theatrical screenings, I think you're looking at VOD or buying it from the Criterion mm-hmm. Collection because recently it was added and you can get it from there. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, I don't know how you would see this movie. Like it is, it, I checked before we started the show. It's not on any streaming <laughs> services. So, yeah. I, I, yeah. One last thing I wanted to mention was, uh, so when they shot this in 2002, 2003, um, the person had still, the serial killer had still not been caught. Uh, And so when they were actually out filming, because they were kind of in the same location, um, they didn't know, or or they thought, you know, there's a real possibility this serial killer might just kind of come up and watch, because there were lots of people would come up while they were shooting outside. Um, He said... One of those people could easily be the serial killer and no one would know because, uh, you know, he wasn't caught. Um, and so, so it was a very kind of th- uh, of scary and frightening thought that, that um, he might be around or he might eventually uh, see, see the movie they were making. Very haunting. Yeah, and, and to build on that quickly before recommendations, I'd say, and I think Andy would agree, um, if you are interested in this and want to know more uh, after this interview, don't, don't, I don't look up the case. Don't look up the film. Don't even watch more of the trailer than like what we're showing here. Just go see it. Like, cause the blinder, I think you go in the better experience you're going to have. Cause I had a ton of fun watching this, having no idea what I was getting into. Um, and that, that really, really sealed the deal for me. I think that's part of what made it such a fun watch. Um, mm-hmm. so with that being said, Andy, would you recommend memories of murder? Absolutely. Fantastic film, dark comedy, uh, content warning. I mean, it is about a series of serial murders that were very violent and were all involved, uh, women. So just content warning there. Uh, but fantastic film. I can't believe it was again, his second film. And this came out around the same time that old boy did, which is one of my other favorite, uh, South Korean films by, uh, Park Chan Wook. Um, so yeah, absolutely recommend. Yep. Same here, 110. percent um, This is one of those like, don't walk, run to the movies. Um, if it was out, I would absolutely be encouraging you to go see it. If it was on streaming services, I would tell you to subscribe. It is that good. Uh, I I really really like this movie. Uh, I and I'm a sucker for 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 kind of kind of serial cases like this and police dramas. I, I dig that stuff, and I really like Fincher's Zodiac. So seeing anything that's even regarded as a similar realm of picture uh, is excellent for me um yeah this movie's super good i i will probably look into buying it at some point so i can watch it again really good and also if you haven't seen parasite go see that as well both tremendous films um man what a week at the movies yeah <laughs> yeah uh, glad this popped up Real quick, um, before we get into what we're doing next week, I just want to ask, would you encourage anybody to go see a movie at Valley View Mall? Only with, like, a friend. Man. Only with a friend. Do not go alone. That's how I feel. Don't do it. So Don't go the, at night, if possible. The last thing I saw there was Hereditary, um, which was also um, really scary. So it was, like, a really haunting environment to be in. Did you take a date to go see that? No. Oh, thank God. <laughs> no, oh God. <laughs> I have d- How could you have, do that to somebody? I have done that before. I have taken a date to see a movie that was like not really date friendly. You like but didn't I didn't really know I, what you were going to do. I did, didn't, yeah. Yeah, that happens. All right, uh, what are we watching next week? 
Uh, so we got a couple of things coming out on streaming. We have uh, Rebecca, uh, which is on Netflix, uh, coming out tomorrow. Actually, uh, this is um, this is like a classic film. It's a film that's been remade several times. I think it's based on a book uh, novel. I don't know anything about it other than it's kind of a classic film that's been done several times. Um, so that's coming out tomorrow. And we're also the witches, which on HBO max, uh, which comes out on Thursday, uh, which is a remake of the 1990s, uh, film, the same name based on a book by Roald Dahl. And, uh, oh, right. Starring Anne Hathaway, right? Yep. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah, two, right. a couple of things on, on new to streaming this week. Uh- Okay, give it to me straight, and I don't mean for this to, to encourage people not to listen next week, because you totally should, but I'm curious. Do, do you actually want to see The Witches, or are we just doing this because there's nothing else to watch? Because a trailer's a little lukewarm for me. <laughs> I didn't even watch the trailer. I was just... Uh... Okay, well then don't. We're, just we're, watch we're, it blind. Like It'll be good. Yeah, yeah it, it looks okay. An, it it stars looks an, all right. Uh, sorry, starring Anne Hathaway, Octavia yeah. Spencer, uh, Stanley Tucci, and Chris Rock. I, I I like Anne Hathaway. Um, I I haven't seen her in a whole lot lately, so I'll support. I'll, I'll throw her. We'll, watch. we'll see Why what not? pops up. I mean, we didn't expect to do Memories of Murder this week, so that's true. We, yeah, we never who know. knows. Uh, and then also the week after, we're gonna have to get into something good for Halloween. I got I got one good idea, but uh, we'll get into that next week. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, first off, thanks for watching. We appreciate it. Uh, we do the show every Tuesday right around 4, 30, 5 o'clock central. We are in uh, Dallas where we're recording. So if you liked what we were doing, you can check out our live stream of the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash off script. We're on YouTube where we also post our live streams. We do a little stuff on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, our website is offscriptfilmreview.com and you can write us correspondence in the comments of one of our videos or at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Let us know what you've been watching. Uh, let us know what you thought of one of the movies we've seen today or what you might be expecting from one of the films coming up. Uh, you can subscribe to the show. to help us out just as a proper podcast that actually helps out way more than you know and if there's anything big you want to do if you're thinking man i really wish i could do something cool because i really enjoyed what these guys are doing uh throw us a rating and maybe a review just a few words to say hey here's what we liked here's what i didn't like hopefully what you liked uh you know four or five stars five stars whatever five stars uh and you can do it on itunes android spotify i think does ratings now i heart media i think has some rating stuff and we're available on all of those services anywhere you get your podcast that's where off script will be with all of that being said uh you're listening to, i guess you've listened to god i forgot how to do an outro every week i do this uh thanks for listening to off script from review the home of bold cinema <laughs> i'm zach lewis and i'm dr draper thanks for listening